Well, good Sunday morning. This is March 15th, uh, 2020, East Parkway Church in Roseville, California, and it is our uh, Sunday service that is aware of the uh, coronavirus threat, and so we're taping this this morning from the sanctuary. My name's David Nystrom. Uh, I'm a professor at Western Seminary. I'm teach New Testament primarily, that's my expertise, but I also teach uh, in some other fields. And I've been very happy, very happy to be uh, invited to be speaking for a series here at East Parkway. Uh, I have tremendous respect for Pastor Wayne and for Andre uh, on the pastoral staff and have always felt a welcomed part of the family here, so really appreciate that. So this is the fifth Sunday of five, uh, an overview of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So it's uh, a little bit uh, further removed, a little bit broader view than simply an exegetical verse-by-verse study, but it is closer than, uh, than a 30-minute presentation overview of 1 Corinthians. So um, today, uh, well, 1 Corinthians, as we've reviewed, is next to Romans, Paul's uh, most important letter. And in some ways, it might be even more important than Romans. After all, Romans is what Paul does rarely. So in Romans, he's writing to a church. Uh, He's not been there. And he writes, in effect, one chapter in a systematic theology textbook. Uh, But in 1 Corinthians, he does what he does most of the time. So in the New Testament, most of his letters are his response to communication he's received from a particular church, and then he answers their questions. So we get to see him apply theology to real-life situations, uh, which is, if you think about it, exactly what you and I are called to do. So we can follow that model. We can learn a lot from how Paul understands theology, not just as a set of ideas, but um, as ideas that are meant to be put in practice. So 1 Corinthians, 16 chapters. Uh, the first six chapter, uh, chapters are his response to a letter he's received from one of the four house churches that make up the Christian community in Corinth. Uh, and it's a group he calls Chloe's People. Uh, and that's chapters 1 through 6. Beginning in chapter 7 uh, is his response from a letter he's received from the church as a whole. And that goes, uh, certainly chapter 7, 8, 9, probably 10, maybe 11, maybe 12. Uh, It's really hard to say where uh, his response to the official letter ends, and then he begins uh, treating matters that have occurred to him. He knows an awful lot about the church. He founded the church. And so um, uh, the rest of the letter, certainly it looks like chapters 14, 15, and 16, he is now um, uh, treating issues that are important to him that have come to mind Uh, because of his knowledge of what's going on in the church. So some foundational principles uh, for his theology, his practical theology. We live in a world, uh, in this world, but our true citizenship is in heaven. Once we become Christians, we become, uh, the Greek word is uranapolitai, that just means citizens of heaven. Um, And so, uh, as he says uh, in 2 Corinthians, uh, we're ambassadors here. So ambassadors live in a country not their own. They represent the home country to the country in which they live. And if they're any good, they ought to have uh, a knowledge of that 
country and where they're serving, and they ought to have affection for the people who live there. Second major principle for Paul's thought is we human beings are broken and we cannot fix ourselves. We need help from outside. And that help comes uh, when we uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ and uh, the spirit of the living God, the promise is, comes to dwell within us. Some other foundational principles, the reality of spiritual forces, wholesome and unwholesome in our world. Uh, and those unwholesome spiritual forces, their power is broken at the crucifixion resurrection, but they're still dangerous. Uh, and so we have to be alert and aware of um, uh, their purview, their power, and their arena of operation. Uh, and a practical <coughs> principle for Paul is um, some things are more important than others, and we all live by that principle. Um, there are certain things that, are, that we do every day uh, that are routine tasks, but if we wake up and discover um, that uh, the house next to us is on fire, we don't just continue doing the same routine task. We vary what we do depending on uh, our, our internal sense of what uh, goals, what principles are more important than others. And for Paul, uh, some of these are uh, uh, love uh, versus knowledge. Um, he has this strong sense that maybe the most important thing is that we uh, are about the evangelistic task and more than evangelism but uh, but connecting people to the risen Christ and then helping them uh, get on the path of discipleship of growing in Christ um, and he'll make a contrast between two ways of living the way of the world and uh, the way of the Lord so pure living is important, so you, and you have been sanctified, he says, if you're a Christian, so you need to start living like it. So live into the reality. An image he uses elsewhere is um, when we become Christians, it's a little like we've been in a jail cell, but what Christ has done uh, that we've appropriated through faith, uh, in effect, has, has cast the jail cell open. That door is open. And so uh, we're supposed to go out that, of that cell and explore the life of faith. But some of us have actually, after exploring a little bit, have, gotten, have gone back to the jail cell and sat down again. Uh, we're so habituated to uh, the life of the flesh. So now chapters 14, 15, and 16. So 1 Corinthians 14 is a long section devoted to the, to the Christian gathering, what we call the worship service. And one of the purposes, at least for Paul, of what we call the worship service. So Paul would say the principle, the purposes of, of a worship service, a gathering of the faithful, uh, include, uh, first of all, just the fact of gathering. It's important for us to be connected to physically uh, and emotionally and socially, that we come to know each other, because we are a body. We're not organisms that happen to say, share the same environment. We are a single organism. And Paul will also say the purpose includes issues like growing in intellectual understanding of the faith. So just understanding with our, with our minds, but also a spiritual maturity, learning how to, how to develop the uh, Christian uh, graces and to live uh, more and more of the life of faith. It's also for encouragement of one another, to comfort one another, um, and a functional knowledge of Christian living. So Paul writes, follow the way of, the, of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Now, the, his word that is translated prophecy 
is actually a word that is closer in meaning to what we call uh, preach or explicate, explain the scripture. Uh, uh, so it isn't uh, to predict the future. That's the way we often think of prophecy in the uh, 21st century. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So there, the, 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 the contrast is people who are uh, uh, speaking in tongues, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, speaking in a language they don't consciously know under the power, influence of the Spirit, on the one hand, but look at verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening. So that's clearly you're speaking in an intelligible language that can be understood by the people around you. So that's what we would call preaching. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless someone interprets, unless there's someone there to interpret if you speak in tongues, uh, then the church can't be edified. So this section will touch on glossolalia, that's the technical term, glossa, tongue, that's the Greek word for tongue, and laleo is the verb to speak or to say. So two different expressions of this phenomenon. Um, con in contemporary life, uh, we, we say there are two ways this, the, the, this is expressed. The first I've already discussed, when you speak in a language that's intelligible to those who are native speakers, but you yourself don't know. Uh, but there's also, uh, it also sometimes refers to a, t a pattern of speaking that's ecstatic that isn't really any particular language. And in either one of these cases, um, when you're speaking that, you're, you don't even understand what you're saying. And so th there is a sense, though, of the Spirit, apparently the Spirit being in you and you're connected to the Spirit, but you're the only one that benefits from that. And that's Paul's point. Uh, prophesy is a benefit to the whole body. But some things we do are a benefit only to ourselves. And they are a benefit, but they're only to ourselves. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. So, apparently, uh, as I think we've seen earlier, uh, there were many who understood the worship service as an opportunity for them to make themselves look good and look more important than other people. And some of them were speaking in tongues for that purpose and to that effect. Paul writes, uh, continues, Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So we've seen this already. This is a, a community that thinks that Gifts of the Spirit are markers of spiritual maturity and, and, and maybe spiritual ascendancy. Paul doesn't believe that, that that's what the spiritual gifts uh, represent. They aren't markers of spiritual maturity. They're given by God almost at random for the building up of the church. But he, but he recognizes that what's in their heart. 
However, misguided. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, okay, try for ones that build up the church instead of ones that you're trying to use to make yourself look important. Note their eagerness for the gifts of the Spirit and the primacy of building up the gathering. And watch to see what Paul will say regarding gifts first, fruits of the Spirit. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. There's someone there who can interpret it. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So I'm speaking in tongues. My mind doesn't even know what I'm saying. But I have a sense of God's spirit. And I benefit from that, but nobody else does necessarily. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else, who is now put in the position of an inquirer, say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? If you are giving thanks, you are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. No one else is built up. So at least sometimes when speaking in tongues occurs, the speaker does not even know what he or she is saying. You can see here the strong emphasis on growing in your knowledge of the ways of the Lord for you as well as for the person who is new to the gathering. So the, one of the purposes of the gathering is to grow in your understanding of the faith, but not just you, for the, for the body as a whole to grow. Again, the service is not for you alone. It is for the body and the individual members of the body to be edified. And this edification, this growing, is both A, growing in intellectual, rational understanding of the faith, and B, growing in conscious and reflective understanding of the body, and your own part in the body, that the Christian gathering is a community in which we need one another. Continuing in chapter 14, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words at a tongue. So why is Paul thankful? Uh, because those who are attacking Paul are saying, speaking in tongues, especially, but the other gifts of the Spirit also, but speaking in tongues especially, that's the mark of spiritual maturity. And Paul here is saying, no, the fruits of the Spirit are the mark of spiritual maturity. But by your own reckoning, since you think the gifts of the Spirit as, uh, are the marks of spiritual maturity, and as my giftedness is more than yours, then even by your logic, you have to listen to what I say. And he says, the gifts of the Spirit are not the marks of spiritual maturity. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking be adults. In the law it is written, What other tongues, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Be infants in regard to evil. I have little experience with it. <laughs> and those who want to use the gathering to exalt themselves, well, they are on the road that leads away from edification. And the way to say it plain is, they are headed towards evil. Tongues, Paul writes, then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. 
If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, they, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God really is among you. So preaching effectively is speaking the truth in such a way that people recognize the central tenets of the gospel, that we're broken and we cannot fix ourselves, that we need help from outside, that uh, those tenets actually comport with human experience. So speaking in tongues versus prophesying, to prophesy is to speak God's word. This is equivalent, or perhaps you ought to say, is the, con uh, the contemporary analog for this is to preach, to explicate God's word, to explain God's word and God's truth. So explain plainly, this is who we are, this is how the world is, this is what God has done, and this is the destiny he has for us. So let us take the journey of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Continuing in chapter 14, it's a long chapter. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction or a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can call all prophecy in turn, for you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. So to prophesy is uh, to preach, to prophesy, to proclaim God's word is an activity that uh, combines not only the influence of the spirit, but also our cognitive abilities that God has given us. So it's the building up once again, the maturing of the body as a whole. That is the cardinal purpose of the gathering of the body. It is not to be used for anyone or any group to make the experience about themselves. Then Paul continues, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to be speaking in church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people who is reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. So elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, when the women pray and prophesy. So it seems pretty clear he cannot here mean that women must not do these things because he's already, he's already recognized they're doing it uh, earlier in the letter, chapter 11, and, and commends that activity. So uh, what can we say here? Well, he must be referring to something that they are doing which is disturbing the worship service. That is, after all, the point of this section of the letter. Now, the word that Paul uses here for quiet, sigatoson, 
means stop speaking. So it isn't just be quiet, like they should continue being quiet, but they're interrupting and they should stop speaking. Paul wants the women to be educated, that is clear. But the point seems to be the worship experience is not the place for them to be asking questions, as the following point, if they want to inquire about something, seems to indicate. Now, elsewhere in his uh, corpus, in uh, 1 Timothy, he says that women should learn in quietness, and the term he uses there is uh, hezekiah, which carries the meaning of quiet, uh, of rest, or of inner stillness, or calm. So, yes, he wants women to learn, and uh, this idea of being in submission or of quietness, Paul will elsewhere say, should also be characteristic of what men do in worship. So the big point here is, I think, um, he is not saying uh, women, should, uh, women are commanded never to speak or be involved in the worship service at all. He's talking about a very specific case here where women were asking questions and disturbing the worship service. So they should learn in quietness, he says elsewhere, with a receptive heart and mind. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Don't forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, chapter 15, he's going to talk about the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection, general resurrection at the end of time. He's going to speak some about uh, Christology, and that's a kind of a fancy word meaning doctrine of Christ. Uh, but he's going to say in the first part of uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died for our sins. Secondly, he's going to say Christ undoes what Adam did. And third, he's going to make the case that uh, Jesus Christ is the second Adam, Adam as he should have been. So chapter 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So I preached it to you. You received it. And on that message you have already taken your stand. And by that gospel, you are saved. So continue holding to it firmly. And Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, according to the scriptures, that's a, um, that's a really interesting uh, uh, phrase in the New Testament. Uh, it appears at the end of the Gospel of Luke, where the risen Jesus, speaking to the disciples he's met on the road to Emmaus, uh, and they're relating what they've heard, um, uh, says that Jesus says to them, the risen Jesus says to them, you know, you're kind of slow to figure this thing out. And then it says he opened their minds and showed them how according to the scriptures. And this is a, a reference to a collection of about 15 passages that occur over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 110, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 53, uh, etc. And these uh, 15 passages form, it's pretty clear, form, uh, for Jesus, they formed a kind of central uh, orienting compass for how he understood his ministry and his career. So, um, 
the Jews, of course, didn't believe. They, they had no expectation that the Messiah would suffer and die. Jesus even asked that question at one point. Where does it say the Messiah must suffer and die? And uh, his interlocutors don't have an answer. Uh, because Jesus is the one who puts together uh, the combination, the idea of suffering servant and Messiah. Um, and in fact, that's what the voice from heaven at the baptism does. Uh, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, you are my son is Psalm 2. But, you are, but Psalm 2 says, you are my son, this day uh, have I begotten you. That is, God says to a king when the king begins to reign, from this day forward, you're my son, my agent, and that starts today. This day have I begotten you. But the voice from heaven at the baptism for, uh, uh, of Jesus says, uh, you are my son, or this is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. So the in whom I'm well pleased comes from somewhere else. And where is that? It comes from the suffering servant passages in Isaiah. So the, that's where you, we see these two ideas put together. It's also central to Jesus' understanding of himself as son of man. And he'll say the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now the the central uh, locus for son of man uh, theology in the Old Testament is Daniel 7, but there the son of man will be served. And there the son of man is victorious and and will be served. Serving to give his life as a ransom for many, where could that possibly come from? Well, obviously, it's, uh, it's Isaiah uh, 40 through 53. So Jesus and uh, the voice of God at the baptism have these two ideas put together. So Christ was uh, died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was raised from the dead on the third day. He appeared to Peter in the twelfth. So after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Well, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So he says, yeah, there's people still alive actually saw the risen Jesus. You you could go find out if you really needed to and wanted to. But he also appeared to me and uh, as one untimely born because I didn't actually know the, 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 the human earthly Jesus. But I've had an experience of the risen Christ. For I am the least of the apostles, and don't even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by the way, this is really a comforting passage to all of us, that if someone who sought with conviction, fortitude, energy, if someone who sought to eradicate the Christian movement could become a believer and then become maybe the ablest exponent of the Christian gospel. Well, he understood the forgiveness of God. So, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, the forgiveness of God can wash over us and and make us clean. And God um, desires for us to live free of that painful past. However, if it's 30 years ago or 30 seconds ago. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. And yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach 
And this is what you believed. So Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. And God raised him from the dead. It ain't Christianity if it doesn't include this. Crucified, dead, buried, raised from the dead. If this is not true, Paul says, then we are the most pitiful and pitiable of all people. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. And God raised him from the dead. It's not Christianity if it doesn't have that formula at its center. But if this is true, and through this we can be, and if we are believers, we are saved from. We're saved from the power of sin, the forces of evil, Satan, as well as the, the inclination we all have towards evil and selfishness. We're saved from that, and we're also saved for life in the spirit, new community, which is what the previous chapter was really all about in this chapter as well, as well as the, the idea of being God's ambassador to the world in which we live. So if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So there was evidently a current in the church of people who thought the resurrection was a crazy idea. And of course, many people had joined the church and were part of the community, and they really didn't know much about the story. And they're bringing into the church a lot of their previous ways of thinking. And so they're saying, no, 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 the resurrection of the dead, that's a, that's a, that, that can't be true. So Paul's saying, wow, if you're denying that, you're denying actually denying the power of Christianity, and uh, you're also... Uh, you're also making a claim about oh, those of us who've testified this originally, who brought to you the message originally, because we've said that God raised them from the dead. So whatever it is you're putting out there, it's not the message we brought to you, if you're denying the resurrection of the dead, just in general. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sin. So it's, it's the resurrection, it's the death and resurrection that, that makes it possible for us to be free from the penalty and the power of sin. Then those who also, and then those also who have fallen asleep are lost. That means if they've passed away. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Wow. If our belief in Jesus is false, okay, so we're living a life this way, but we're, we're, we're deluded. So he doesn't, just, he doesn't say, okay, this other view of Christianity is just wrong uh, or, or slightly off. He says, it's, it's totally wrong. <laughs> it is completely incompatible with the faith. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, that is Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also to a man. For as in Adam all die. So the first human being, the first man, Adam, sinned. And because of that, the rest of us have got, have got that, um, that defect or that stain. We are broken. 
We're born broken, uh, curved in upon ourselves, as Luther said. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That's so, Paul, so Christ is the second Adam, Paul will say in Romans, Adam as he should have been. He undoes what Adam did. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So this is a preview, really, of the rest of the story. Satan's power is broken at the crucifixion and resurrection. Um, but uh, and he's, uh, uh, but uh, he still is dangerous, and he's a deceiver. He wants to appear a lot more dangerous than he really is, and he's still running around as well as his henchmen, his, uh, uh, his associates, uh, the principalities and the powers, causing trouble. So the power is broken, uh, but the end isn't, isn't, isn't accomplished yet. It's a little like D-Day in World War II. Once the Allies, it was clear the Allies had established a beachhead in Normandy and were moving inland. The end was determined. But there still was a lot of fighting left to do before the war was over. For he must reign, that is Christ, until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. And when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, that is God, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. So the resurrection signals the victory of God. The victory has been won, but there is still a good deal of the drama left to be played out. It's as if I were scheduled to play a 15-minute one-on-one basketball game with Steph Curry. I think the end is already determined, even before the game starts. Before the game even started, the end is already set. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with, more than, uh, with, with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, well, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What's, what's the point of life? If the dead are not raised, you might as well just be a total hedonist, he says. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So that last line, probably there were some who were thinking, this Christianity thing is pretty awesome. We can do whatever we want, and God always forgives us. And they, they, they don't realize um, the, that Christianity is about uh, growing in Christ. It's becoming who God wants us to be. It's not like some uh, like you've won some weird lottery and now you have a permanent get-out-of-jail-free card. What about this baptized for the dead stuff? That's really hard to understand. See in verse uh, 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? So what's Paul talking about? Well, um, Christianity is never, uh, at least the early, early Christians didn't practice the baptism of the dead. So he's got to be talking about some practice that was going on uh, that he doesn't agree with um, there in the church in Corinth. And, he's, and so his argument is, okay, you've just said there's no resurrection, but you're also baptizing people for the dead. Help me understand how those two, thi- how those two things are not contradictory. 
I don't, I don't agree with baptizing for the dead, but that's what you're doing. And, and the only reason you do that is if you believe there be a resurrection. So you can't do that and also be claiming there is no resurrection. So he's pointing to something they're doing as undercutting their very point they've been making to him. So most likely there were, there were some people there who were practicing the baptism of the living on behalf of the dead. And we know from the early church fathers like Tertullian, uh, the, I think the, the, uh, the, f- uh, the fifth chapter of his uh, Against Marcion uh, records this. Um, uh, they know there were some uh, splinter Christian or Christian-like groups that practiced baptism of the dead. Now, Paul neither condones nor condemns this practice here. What he does say is, if there is no resurrection, then why are you even, then why are you even practicing this? And I say this for your shame, probably because you've been using the worship service to exalt yourself instead of for the education and building up of the body. But someone will ask, how are they raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to, be, to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as, as he has determined. Now to each kind of seed, he gives his own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun is one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised in spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was an earthly man. So are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. So what he's arguing here or saying here is, um, we have lived the life of Adam which is a life less than God intended for humanity. You, meet, you might even say it's a subhuman existence, less than God intended. But by becoming human, and then crucifixion, dying at the crucifixion, and then resurrected from the dead, Christ then lives a spiritual body. So that makes it possible for us not only to discern what the heavenly body is going to be like. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does anything... Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Look, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet shall sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So here's a, just a, a very quick uh, snapshot of, uh, of uh, what we might call the end of time. Uh, when uh, God raises the dead, uh, there's a general resurrection of the dead at the end of time. Jews believe this and uh, Christians believe it as well. So where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because none of us can perfectly follow the law. We're all going to come up short. Therefore, oh, and, 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 and what's the alternative? Well, to faith in Christ. Because uh, the Christian message is that, you know, we accept the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the living God comes to dwell within us, and we gradually, as we grow in Christ, we give up, we spend more time listening uh, and following the guidance of the Holy Spirit instead of our own inclinations, which are, uh, which are tricksy. We can be, one second we do something magnanimous, and the next second we're doing something that's incredibly selfish. So we are, we're confused. But God can put his spirit within us that helps guide us back. It's within like a compass that's guiding us back to what we are made for. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Well, that's... <laughs> yeah, don't follow two masters. <laughs> you know, you can't drive two directions at once. So put yourselves on the road, uh, you know, that is the road that Christ has laid out for you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And now, finally, uh, chapter 16. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I have told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Saving it up. So that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the people you approve, the men you approve, and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, then I'll go with them. So uh, churches in Galatia, that is present-day Turkey, and in, uh, and in Corinth, present-day Greece. And they have together uh, partnered, or, uh, agreed, that they're going to take up a collection for the relief of, of the poor. There was a famine in, in, uh, in, uh, in the Holy Lands. So they're going to give money to support people other than themselves. And he even says, do it on a weekly basis. It's important to do things regularly. Make it a habit. And they made a promise. And it's also money. You know, Jesus teaches, uh, uh, you know, that the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, but the love of money. And, um, and he will say, deny money its power. And uh, he's not the only one who says this. I mean, there's this great play by Aristophanes 400 years before Jesus in which he... Uh, he talked called wealth, and one of his points is um, wealth has this money has this corrosive power that trophies and awards don't have, because you can have enough awards, you can have enough trophies, but you can never have enough money. Money has the key. Money, money is the key that unlocks some part of us that is that is selfish and self-interested, and it it just multiplies itself. That that kind of self-fascination. So deny it, Jesus says, deny money its power. Learn to give it away. And notice the affection he has for them, that he knows them. He knows them. He knows them by name, and he's asking them to share in his task and in the life of Christ. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, or I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even maybe spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. 
or I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I want to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work is open to me, to me, and there are many who oppose me. That's an interesting observation. <laughs> there are many who oppose me, and that means there's also probably real reason why they're opposing me. So there's a possibility for real important ministry. But when Timothy comes, so see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Yeah, watch yourself. <laughs> watch the culture around you. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. And do everything in love. You know the household of Stephanus was the first convert, were the first converts in Achaia, that is Greece. And they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. That's interesting. So submit here, submit to everyone who joins in the work. So submission is not so much about hierarchy. It's about submitting to God and the purpose God has. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived. Because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia, that is a region in, um, in modern day Turkey, send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets at their home. Uh, all the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. So Paul typically used an amanuensis, so um, like a, a, a monuensis. So the, the Latin word manus means hand, like manipulate is to, is to move things around. So uh, he, he usually dictated and someone else wrote it down, probably because his eyesight as a guy who was probably 60 or so uh, was beginning to fail. I started wearing glasses in my 20s, so I would probably need an amanuensis myself, if not for these. Um, so, uh, but I'm so energized by what's going on there, I'm writing this in my own hand. So that's a kind of, um, he's saying, look how important this is to me. If anyone doesn't love the Lord, let that person uh, be cursed. Yeah, they're going to be. I mean, the love of the Lord, and he's talking not just, people in general. He's talking about the people that are in the, in the Christian community. So are there people in the community that are just there using the church for some sort of design of their own? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. This, these powerful ideas of grace, unmerited favor, that even though we, are, we are, have sinned, even though we've been wayward, God still 
forgives, loves, forgives, protects. May that wash over you and, and as it does, help to turn your heart more and more to God. And my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. So that's Paul's letter. A lot of really important theological principles at work, uh, practically expressed, and uh, should be an encouragement for us to know that the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and dead and buried, um, accomplished for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We come to him in faith and we are saved. The spirit of the living God comes to dwell in us and we uh, can begin to live into what God intended for us as human beings. But that salvation is not just about me and you individually, but there's also something about the corporate entity that's so critical that we need one another. So Father God, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your love for us, that you don't vaporize us the first time and every time we sin, but that you work on our hearts. Like the Spirit, your Spirit is already in our hearts. So Father, help us learn to listen more attentively, to turn our hearts and our lives more to you so that when we encounter people and they hear the timber and tone of our voice and experience our presence, they experience Jesus Christ himself, we pray. Amen.